Anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. That's right, everybody. Welcome back. This is the Peddling Fiction Podcast. For any of you out there who are listening and you are not sure what you're listening to, or who you're listening to for that matter, I am your host. Some may refer to as the voice and soul of so-called fiction, Johnny the Gentile Profita. And I think I got a pretty good show for you folks today. I think by the time anybody actually listens to this, I will be hopefully in beautiful, sunny Puerto Vallarta. I leave tomorrow morning. I am gone for three weeks, but that does not mean that the podcast will not live on. I have at least one episode prepared, I think. I just have to finish up some editing on it. And then I am bringing my equipment down with me, so I will be doing some live, maybe some live broadcasts down there if I can figure it out, or just some shorter episodes if something happens in the news and I can give you guys my thoughts, something like that. And who knows, maybe I'll, maybe I'll take you on a stroll down the beach in the mornings. A morning stroll with Johnny the Gentile. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. But man, has it been a stressful day. It's always, you know, no matter what I do, no matter how much I try to plan ahead, I've only been looking forward to this vacation for about six months, okay? And I've been trying to get stuff done in advance, and it just, no matter what I try to do, no matter how much I try to get done beforehand, it all seems to come to a head the day before I leave. Work was just a nightmare today. I had, Like I said, I had to go on the last episode, I mentioned I had to go back downtown to get my pesos, which I, I did that this afternoon. I had to get a haircut. Actually, I got them all cut. <laughs> nice dad joke for, for all you listeners out there. Uh, so that took up a, a lot of my afternoon just doing that. Could have gone without that little detour. And then just a lot of other stuff, a lot of other little things piling up and things taking longer than they should. Still have to finish packing. I got to empty the dishwasher and tidy up a little bit so I can come home to a clean place three weeks from today, uh, tomorrow, actually. And I don't know. I don't know where all these hours go. There's just never enough hours in the day. My weekend was completely shot. I, I got talked into playing flag football for a team that I've been playing for for the last uh, 10 years or so. And it was the playoffs for them and did not go well. We got our asses kicked hard, uh, but no, I suffered no major injuries, which was my big goal was to not blow out my knee or dislocate my shoulder or something 
two days before I go on vacation for three weeks. So I considered it a successful game, even though we got our asses handed to us. Big league. And then Sunday, of course, I had to watch the Bears stink up the joint. And then I had a softball reunion, which for anybody who's not familiar with Chicago-style 16-inch softball, it really is its own animal. It's its own thing. Like Nobody in the world plays softball like we do. With a, with a 16-inch softball and no gloves, unlimited arc. But I played for what I think is going to be a, a Chicago Hall of Fame softball team. I believe we are going to be inducted at some point as a historic saloon team, as Don DeBat keeps telling me. So we'll, we'll see about that. But I, I played with a lot of legendary softball players over the years, and... You know, these guys were way past their prime. They're all at 50s, 60s. Some of them were even 70 when, and they were still playing softball and could still, you know, still do their thing. This one guy could get a base hit like every time. He's unbelievable. But a lot of these guys are going to be inducted in the Softball Hall of Fame. And when the, the coach got up to be about like 71, 72, and he retired uh, last year, and he was trying to get me to run the team, and that was a hell no. I, I barely wanted to play most days of the week. But anyway, those guys were supposed to be getting together on Sunday at one of the bars that used to sponsor one of the teams. We played in probably four different leagues. We'd play five days a week. It was insane. Way too much softball for me. These guys, these old guys, these old-timers, they eat, sleep, and dream 16-inch softball. It consumes their entire lives. It, it's really something to see. And I don't know what it was about the 60s and the 70s, maybe because there was no internet, no Netflix or anything. Like All these guys did was play 16-inch softball every goddamn day. And it was the greatest time of their lives, and they just will not let it go. So what, we were supposed to have this reunion, and I hadn't seen these guys in a while because when I wouldn't take over the team, it kind of dissolved, and I actually haven't played softball the last two seasons formally. I filled in for a couple teams, but I have taken a step back from that, and so I thought it'd be good to see some of these guys, and so I, I go all the way down to this bar, and uh, nobody's there. I mean, not nobody. There, there was maybe six or seven guys, but... I didn't play with any of them. I played with one of these guys for maybe three three or four seasons. And, you know, I wouldn't have gone all the way out of my way to do this. But I guess one of the, the main coaches was having knee problems and he couldn't, he couldn't move or something and nobody else wanted to go. I don't know. I don't know. So that was kind of a waste. My Sunday afternoon was shot and I couldn't get anything done. I couldn't get this episode recorded. I couldn't get my work done. And so now I'm kind of behind the eight ball here, scrambling last minute, get an episode out so that you guys have something to listen to for the rest of this week. And then I can finally start my vacation once this podcast is over. Well, and I guess I finish all those things I talked about. But man, is it stressful. I sure do need a vacation. But anyways, since we last talked, there have been some developments in the Democratic uh, primary race 
couple couple major developments. We lost Robert Francis O'Rourke. Another one bites the dust. Beta male is done for. He calls it a quits. And I I can't say I'm going to miss him. <laughs> he was unbearable to watch. I couldn't stand that guy. He was just such a uh oh, such a cuck and a beta male and he was just he embodied everything that I hate about modern day men. These effeminate apologetic uh, what do I want to say? What what the hell? How do you describe Beto O'Rourke? Just a pussy. He's a pussy politician. You know, he's just constantly apologizing for being born and being white and being a man and just trying to tell everybody what they want to hear. And then he goes off at talking about how he's going to take all of our guns. Yeah, hell yeah. Hell yeah. I guess you can mark all of my guns safe from the grasp of Beto O'Rourke as if they were ever in danger. But, you know, I I couldn't help but think back to when he was initially announcing his candidacy and the media was just fawning over this guy, absolutely fawning. And it, it really was something to see because there is nothing. He has like no attractive qualities in a candidate that you might look for he's awkward he's not good looking he's has no charisma he he has gives these weird speeches like standing on a counter or like on the steps and stuff and doing all this weird shit getting his teeth cleaned and and his ears waxed or some shit i i don't know what the hell he was doing and then he was but the media was eating it up he was the next barack obama he was a white version of barack obama uh, white version. Barack Obama was half white, but they, they had basically anointed him as their guy. And then when everybody else who was watching him was just kind of thinking to themselves, like, what the hell are they talking about? This guy's got nothing. Then they just sort of took a step back and we all got to see him just fall flat on his face and embarrass himself on national TV in every single debate, speaking Spanish, pretending to be a Mexican. Like, what is it with these uh, Democratic candidates where they just can't be themselves? Just be yourself. Try that for try that for once. Maybe that's why Trump was so successful because he was just unapologetically Donald Trump, and people accepted it. He never pretended to not be this billionaire playboy who's banging whores on the side and marrying supermodel wives and whatever. You know, Beto's got to be a fake Mexican. Elizabeth Warren's got to pretend to be an Indian. I don't know what the hell. Cory Booker's a vegan or something. Like, <laughs> he's trying to hide the fact that he's a closet homosexual. Joe Biden's pretending to not be like a geriatric. Now, Bernie Sanders, I guess, is himself. He's authentic. He's authentically uh, a stingy, old, angry Jew who who just doesn't believe anything that he says but can somehow make people think that he, he believes it, even though he doesn't live out any of the, the so-called principles that he believes in. Doesn't follow through on any of it. Okay. But anyway, the other uh, major development as far as the Democratic candidates go, which will be the main focus of this episode, is Pocahontas. 
Pocahontas, who had been taking a lot of heat from, well, I guess a lot of heat by Democratic candidates' standards, right, from the media and from other candidates for not coming clean with an answer to the question of whether or not she's going to raise taxes on the middle class to pay for Medicare for all. You know, her whole thing is, I have a plan for that, (laughs) which is just the most boring slogan ever. I have a plan for that. Okay, yeah, all your plans are retarded, (laughs) okay? And the her newest plan because she was taking heat for not having a plan for how she was going to pay for Medicare for all. So she came out with a plan for Medicare for all and how she's going to pay for it without apparently raising taxes on the middle class if you believe her and my god of all of her plans, all of her asinine plans, which I think I joked in the last debate I tweeted out a joke about how if Pocahontas had instituted all of her plans on the Native Americans, she would have wiped them out faster than Christopher Columbus. (laughs) Um, Her plans are are literally blueprints for destroying civilization. And her newest one on how she's going to go about paying for Medicare for all, it takes the cake. It really does. It is abysmal. And it's the worst plan I think I've seen out of any of the candidates. It's the most ridiculous. It is the equivalent of the Green New Deal, but for Medicare for all. In terms of just insanity and how devastating it would be to the overall economy and the American people. So I want to go over that a little bit and then just talk about Medicare for all in general. And hopefully... With any luck, I can put this whole issue to bed and you guys can spread this episode around the internet and I will be able to convince all of the lemmings out there how bad an idea this is and they'll all vote libertarian. That's that's the plan. Should be a piece of cake. Okay, so if you want Medicare for All from Elizabeth Warren, you can have it at the low, low cost of around $52 trillion over 10 years. That, that's her projection for what it's going to cost the federal government to provide Medicare for all for, 10 year, for the first 10 years, okay? And to put that in perspective, we currently spend, I think, around $4 trillion a year. The entire federal budget, that's all of the defense spending, Every single department, that's Medicare as we know it right now, Social Security, everything. All of government spending is less than $5 trillion a year right now. And she, she wants to spend more than that just on Medicare for all. And then on, on top of that, it's not like she's cutting spending anywhere else. I think the only thing that she was going to cut in, in her plan was $800 billion in defense spending. And I think that's over the same 10-year period, which is nothing. It's not nearly enough. Um, we should cut defense spending. We should cut everything. Actually cut it. Not just uh, trim the rate of growth that I talked about in, in previous episodes. But th- this is just the number 52 trillion. Not only is it going is she completely underestimating the cost of this and i'm going to get into that and why all these government projections are completely wrong all the time we'll go over that 
But even if it wasn't, even if she had the first budget, the first proposed plan to come in at budget in the history of government, it would still be an astronomical number. Astronomical. I I mean, we're just throwing around tens of trillions of dollars now like it's nothing. It's insane. One trillion dollars is so much money. It's such a large number that our brains can't even handle it. We, we can't compute what that is. It's too large. And now that's, that's just 52 trillion. Okay. And the way she's going to come up with 52 trillion without costing the middle class one penny, according to her, is obviously the rich are going to pay for it. So she's going to come up with, uh, you know, five trillion a year extra on top of everything the government's already doing. And the rich are just going to pay for it. I, I, she is delusional. Delusional. And anybody that supports her, and anybody that thinks this is possibly feasible, you are delusional. Okay, she's, her plan is to uh, eliminate the employer-sponsored health insurance, which half of Americans now receive. And a lot of people don't know this. The reason your health care your health insurance is tied to your job right now, which all these politicians complain about and yada, yada, yada. It's because of the government. It's because of the tax code. It's because of the way the tax code is written that it, it, it's, it makes more sense for you to get your health insurance. It, it, it's cheaper because it's pre-taxed money. All right. And it dates back to surprise, surprise, the government and the wage and price controls uh, around World War II. This was a way of getting around wage and price controls that FDR put into place. So companies, you know, they, they, they could only pay you a certain amount of money and then they would give you all these fringe benefits. Well, here, uh, we'll, we'll pay for your health insurance. Uh, so th- this is a, a, an entire, every issue that you have with your health insurance is government created. Okay, it, it's, it's all government created. Um, just about every issue in the world is government created. Obviously. <laughs> um, so she's going to eliminate that. And then your employers, the money that they're paying right now for your health insurance, that's going to go toward this Medicare for all pot. And then um, what else is she going to do? Well, she's got she's going to raise the capital gains tax. Capital gains tax, for anybody who is not familiar with the term, maybe you've heard it before, this is a tax on your profits from any investments you may have that are successful. So not only is taxation theft, but this is a double tax, all right? This is money that they've allowed you to keep, you know, the crumbs that they've allowed you to keep that you, you take a, a calculated risk and you invest it in the market, and let's say you make a return. Your investment pans out a little bit. The government wants a cut of that as well. So not they've taxed this money once, and now they want a cut of the profits from your investment. They're double taxing you on this. They're literally like Tony Soprano with his fat fucking sausage fingers sticking out every time you do something successful. Anytime you have a gain of any kind, they need their cut from their earners. And and so 
she wants right now I think it's 15% for most people and then 20% for uh, uh, top earners, right? And so she's going to raise that top level to, and treat it just like regular income. So the 1% will be taxed at whatever her top rate is, if it's the 40% or the 39% or whatever, and then any of their investment gains will be taxed at that same rate. Okay, that's part of it. Then on top of that, she's going to institute her wealth tax. And, you know, she tried to pitch this as, oh, you know, two cents. We're just, we're just going to take two cents from everybody. As if, well, she's probably banking on the fact that Americans are too stupid to figure out what two cents of every dollar is. All right, that's 2%. Okay, and when you have a lot of dollars, it's not just two cents. It's 2% of everything that you have all of your wealth, all of your possessions. And it's not 2% anymore. She's up that to 6%, 6% on the billionaires. So I, I mean, this is insane. And I don't think people really think through what a wealth tax really means, okay? First of all, let's say you have a billion dollars in wealth. All of your wealth adds up to a billion dollars, okay? That means that at the end of the year, Okay, you have to stroke and this is this is different from your income tax. This is different from your investment tax of which they're taking. They're taking 40 percent of both of those things. Okay, Um, this is on top of all the other taxes you pay your wealth tax. You have to stroke a check to the federal government for 60 million dollars, 60 million dollars. Okay, that's $60 million to use the same roads, to use the same schools, to have the same police and fire protecting you, all, all the things that the statist holds so near and dear to their heart, $60 million. And then the idea that billionaires just have all this cash sitting in their basement like Scrooge McDuck, they're swimming around in gold and stuff like that. No, that's not what billionaires do with their money, okay? It's all invested and even if they keep it at a bank, the bank loans that money out. This is what a, a lot of liberals fail to understand. And I guess just American people in general, th- that they just think that these billionaires are hoarding their money. Oh, they're hoarding it. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean exactly? Because they're not just keeping it under their mattress or like, in, like I said, like Scrooge McDuck, in the basement, okay? I guarantee you very few of them Keep cash on hand, all right? They are not what you would call liquid. Anytime you hear somebody talking about liquidity in, in a financial sense, that's like how much cash they have readily available, uh, for, for lack of a better term, okay? All of the rest of it, these billions of dollars that they are worth are invested in the stock market. They're invested in bonds, which means they've loaned them out to the government or, or maybe some other government. Um, even if they have it in a bank, okay, let's say they have a a billion dollars at Chase Bank. Well, Chase Bank doesn't just have a billion dollars in the vault. Chase Bank takes that billions of dollars, and and thanks to fractional reserve banking, which is a topic for an entire other show, but they loan it out. They loan out that money to other people to start other businesses. This is why it's not a big, it's not a bad thing for people to have billions of dollars, all right? That, That money is utilized, since they don't need it all at once, since they don't need it right now, they can use it to pursue other matters for other people 
they can take advantage of that store of savings to start their own company, to invest in their own plant and equipment so that maybe one day they can become billionaires. Okay, so not only do you have to stroke a check for $60 million if you have $1 billion worth of wealth, but you have to come up with that $60 million, which means you have to sell or liquidate assets. You have to sell some stocks. You have to sell some bonds. You have to you have to maybe sell your company. I don't know. I don't know how you come up with that kind of cash. Uh, this is not a problem that I have to worry about right now. I, I don't have a billion dollars yet. <laughs> okay. But how are they even going to value your wealth? What does that mean? Does that mean you get audited every year and they come through your house and they look at all your stuff and they, they write down how much it's worth and then they go through your entire company, all, all your all your papers and everything, and they just give you a, a, the financial equivalent of a colonoscopy to value whatever your, your assets are? And I'm sure they'll give you a fair valuation just like they do with your house and stuff like that because that the, what the tax is based on. Oh, my God. And then, of course, you have to liquidate it. So, I mean, this is this would be a nightmare for the economy. This would destroy the U.S. economy as we know it. Just those couple things that I mentioned, okay? these billion, You think these billionaires are going to stick around and just get royally bent over and just take it? If you're a billionaire, you can go anywhere in the world that you want. I talked about this a little bit on the last episode, how people were fleeing California and New York and and Chicago. Yeah, you're a billionaire in Chicago. Why the hell would you not only stay in Chicago, stay in the United States to to stroke $60 million checks to the federal government who does nothing but berate you and and, and turn 300 million people against you and and talk about how evil you are every day? Uh, Go to... There's plenty of other countries. Italy is is begging for billionaires to go over there. Just go over to Italy. You can get a villa in Tuscany. I'm pl- I, I think I've mentioned that I'm planning an Italian vacation. I've I looked at some villas. There are some gorgeous places that you can buy in the hills of Tuscany and live like a king. And you don't have to stroke sixty million dollar checks to the federal government for nothing to be treated like a piece of shit on national TV left and right. I mean, give me a break. These guys would be gone. They'd be on the first plane out of here. And not, not only that, future billionaires. You're, you're punishing future billionaires. Like, who's going to become a billionaire now? Who's going to aspire to that? Th- this is just a, a horrible... She's, she is vindictive. And this came up in one of the last debates. She is, like, vindictive and evil. She's by far the scariest candidate in my mind, and which is why she'll probably be the nominee at this point. <laughs> Unless, I mean, I've heard rumors that Hillary Clinton's going to jump back in. And uh, I, when I, you know, when I first heard people talk about that about a year ago, I thought they were crazy, but now it's it's looking like it might be a, a legit possibility. So if Hillary Clinton doesn't get in these idiots might nominate Elizabeth Warren. And I think Trump would wipe the floor with her, just call her Pocahontas the whole time. But who knows? Like, she is by far the scariest candidate for just this wealth tax alone. And and just and that's setting aside the whole morality of the thing, as if the government has a claim to your wealth. Like, what what does that even mean? Think about what the, Think about the implications of that. As I talked about this in terms of taxation and income tax and stuff like that, and now it's just wealth. Now it's just you, you and the things that you own. They think they have a claim to that too. 
not just what you're bringing in every year, not what you're earning, but your stuff. And, you know, it's 6% now because she says it's 6%. If she said it was 20%, it would be 20%, 80%, 100%, whatever. She thinks that she has a right to you. You are her property. You are property of the U.S. government for her to bilk. (laughs) It really is just sickening. But anyway, (laughs) um, before I get too (laughs) off on a little jag there, I don't want to get too bogged down in the details of this deal. Like I'm, I'm sure you can pull up articles and stuff like that and read about it on the internet. I, I want to go over sort of more overarching themes and big picture stuff and, and why there are so many problems with this, this whole idea of Medicare for all and just how big of an issue this is going to be. And when I mentioned earlier that this plan was going to be way more expensive than fifty-two trillion, it's not because I sat and I I crunched all these numbers. Okay, I I'm not gonna waste my time doing that. Nobody has to. You just have to think about it, and you know maybe look at some of the underlying assumptions that Pocahontas is making here, because apparently she thinks if you have to stroke sixty million dollar checks to the federal government and you double the investment income tax and and things like that, nobody's behavior is going to change. Like, nobody's going to stop doing what they're doing or change doing what they're doing, even a little bit. Everything's just going to be the same. And this is something that always amazes me, the, the cognitive dissonance that Democrats must have on this, because they seem to understand that taxing things like cigarettes has an effect on buying habits. Like, they try to use the tax code to incentivize healthier eating. Uh, you know, they have the plastic bag tax. The, the uh, Like I said, the cigarette tax is going to like help with health care costs and make people healthier, stuff like that. But then when it comes to monumental taxes, like, that's like, I don't know, $5 on a pack of cigarettes or whatever it is. I don't, I don't smoke. That will change people's behavior. But stealing $60 million a year from them, that that's no big deal. They'll just sit there and take that. That nothing's gonna change. There's an old saying, I don't know, maybe if you heard it, maybe you haven't, that you get more of what you subsidize and less of what you tax. And and nothing could be more true. If you tax it, people will do less of it, no matter what it is. Okay? They will rearrange their affairs, they will change their buying habits, whatever it is, if you tax it you will get less of that thing. People consuming that thing, people doing that thing. And if you subsidize it, like they're talking about subsidizing medical care with Medicare for All, then you will get more of it. People will use more of it. Okay, And so they make all these projections on what things will cost or how much stuff people will use when they are free based on facts and figures of how much they cost now or how much people use them now when people are subject to prices, when companies are subject to competition that incentivizes them to lower costs. So, of course, if you, if you live Medicare for all and you make healthcare free in America, the costs are not going to be the same from all these healthcare providers and all these insurance providers as they are now when they're not subject to competition, when they don't have incentivized to lower costs. And they make all these assumptions as if nobody's behavior is going to change, as if everyone's just going to do everything the same when cost, of all, cost is no longer an issue, apparently. So 
I mean, that's one of the main reasons why government is always off and, and completely underestimating the cost of these types of programs. I mean, think about it. How much of something would you use if it didn't cost you anything directly, if you weren't actually directly paying for that stuff? I mean, you'll be buying stuff and using stuff that you were never going to buy in the first place. You never used it before, but, you know, what the hell? Why not? It's free. So why not buy it? Why not get it? But there seems to be something about healthcare that that confuses people or just turn and shuts off their brain to this idea. Imagine if we instituted a Medicare for all type program for grocery shopping. Okay? So now nobody has to pay for their own groceries. You just walk into the supermarket and pick out whatever you want. And the government picks up the tab. This is Bernie Sanders' next plan, okay? Uh, grocery, grocery shopping for all, or whatever they call it. Supermarkets for all. You, it's, it's paid for through your taxes, but not your taxes, not the middle class taxes, just the tippy top, the rich people, okay? And it's going to cost, you know, $52 trillion a year, but the rich will pay for it. So now you can just go to the supermarket and pick out whatever you want, and you don't actually have to pay for anything. You just walk right out of the store. Okay. Well, hopefully, if you look at it in this light, you can start to see the absurdity of this plan. Because buying health care would be no different than buying food or anything else, any other commodity. I know they like to talk about health care being a right. It's not. It's a commodity. There's no way of getting around that. It has to be provided to you by somebody else. And all the equipment they use, that has to be provided by somebody else. So right off the bat, what would you do? Would would you do your shopping at the the Stop and Shop or the Dollar General anymore? If that's where you were get you were going for you know your staples, things like plates, cups, shelf stable, you know canned foods, cereal, pancake mix. I don't know, whatever. Okay, you go there to save save a few bucks because it's it's cheaper there and there's no real difference in quality, right? Would you spend time going to Aldi's or Jewel or whatever your major chain grocery store is in your area, Kroger's? And, and would you be clipping coupons and taking advantages of sales and buy one, get ones and stuff like that? Of course not, <laughs> okay? What you would do is you would go right to Whole Foods and the specialty shops that have the highest end, highest quality, most expensive goods. Uh, would you buy ground beef and, and choice or, or select steaks? Or would you buy the USDA prime tomahawks, fillets, lobster tails, the top shelf booze? Uh, nobody's going to be reaching for Jameson or Johnny Walker Red when they can get Blue Label for the same perceived cost. Remember, it doesn't cost you anything. All you have to do is pick it up off the shelf and walk out. And some millionaire pays for it. Some billionaire, right? So now you have everyone using the most expensive things instead of saving costs on items when they can. You think that's built into any of these government projections? Any of these cost projections they come up with? Of course not. How could they? How could they possibly account for how 330 million people's consumption habits would change based on a number of given factors? Even if they were interested in computing that, they couldn't accurately do it. And then, of course, the grocery store 
can charge whatever the hell they want to, because they're the government's paying, right? You're not paying, so what do you care? $60 a pound for steaks because who cares? The government's paying. And if the government caps prices on things, which is another thing that Elizabeth Warren has in her plan, she's going to cap the pay of doctors and things like that and expect the same number of doctors to work. Okay, so if the government starts capping prices of of how much they'll reimburse grocery stores for steaks and lobsters and things like that, well, then you're going to have all sorts of shortages. <laughs> okay, top shelf items will all be gone on the first day of the month. Uh, the beginning of the month would be like Black Friday at Walmart with a bunch of morbidly obese, crazed Americans running around grabbing all the good shit first. You'll, you'll be left with ramen noodles and spam. Okay. Or you'll have to wait in line. You'll have to wait or get some sort like get on some sort of a filet mignon waiting list. Okay. You won't get to buy what you want when you want. You have to get on a waiting list because that's the only way that the government can control the costs and the supply is through rationing at this point, since they've fucked up all the market forces of everything. Think if you think about it in this example, in light of, of a grocery store. Healthcare would be no different. Not all hospitals are created equal. Not all doctors are the same. There are doctors who are better than others. There are specialists who are very expensive. You know, and now if healthcare is free and it's a right, what does that even mean? What does that mean? Everyone has a right to the best doctor in their respective field in the world. You can just demand to see that specialist. Well, everyone will want to go see him or her, and and they'll be backed up for years. There's only so many good doctors, right? Just like there's only so many filet mignons. People will be going to the hospital when they have the sniffles, when they're when they're just feeling a little uh, under the weather, when there's maybe nothing wrong with them, but what the hell, it doesn't cost me anything, so I might as well go there. Hell, they might even just go because they have nothing better to do, and maybe they're hypochondriacs. I know people like that. Their insurance is going to pay for it. So why, why, uh, why not go? Why not go take up a doctor's time? And then on top of that, do you think doctors will be discerning when it comes to running unnecessary tests that they can bill the government for? <laughs> you think they're going to pass on running those unnecessary tests? Or are they going to start running pregnancy tests on postmenopausal women and che- and checking perfectly fine, young, healthy, straight people for AIDS and white people for sickle cell anemia because they can bill the government for it, make a few extra bucks. And who, and who cares? The government isn't going to check into any of that. How could they? I mean, this is going to go off the rails. Costs will explode higher. Waiting times will explode higher because that's the only way that the government can try and control costs is, is put you on a waiting list. Will it be okay for minor injuries and and things that are easy to treat, like broken bones? Uh, Yeah, maybe, sure. You go in, they take an x-ray, they bandage you up, and send you home. Okay, fine. But for serious illnesses, serious illnesses that require long-term care, specialized diagnostics, specialized care, or immediate attention like transplants and major surgeries and things like that, you're going to die waiting, waiting in line like the thousands of veterans have at the VA, which is another thing I find unbelievable, that nobody seems to ever point that out. 
we basically have Medicare for all for veterans. We have a sample size. We've tested this out on a small segment of the population, and it's been a disaster. There were there was the whole corruption scandal at the VA that came to light when Obama was president, and then just thousands of stories and articles and data about the poor level of care, the long wait times, the poor treatment of patients. I mean, let's be honest here. The VA does not have an outstanding reputation among veterans that, that are actually subject to that level of care. I know some progressives will try and paint this in a better light, but ask somebody in the military what, whether they even bother trying to use the VA if they have another viable option. The answer is no. If they can afford to bypass the VA, they will. Absolutely. So now extrapolate that out to 330 million people and you have Medicare for all. <laughs> oh, what a horrible idea. Just, just a horrible idea. And, and by the way, what happened to Obamacare? I, I thought that was going to fix all of these problems in our healthcare industry, not exacerbate them. <laughs> you know, I'm old enough to remember when people like me would get accused of wild conspiracy theories when we would point out that they were just using that as a stepping stone to total government-run healthcare, that Obamacare was going to be a complete disaster Every problem we were facing in the healthcare industry would be made worse by it. Then the government would inevitably come back and demand they need to take more control over everything. I was being crazy. I was being paranoid. But that's exactly what happened. And, and nobody even talks about it. They, they just talk about all these problems in the healthcare industry. And Obamacare is not even, doesn't even come up. Doesn't even come up. And by the way, all of the problems that we have now in healthcare, and I agree that it's a disaster. I just disagree with most people as to why it's a disaster. All of these problems that you may or may not be experiencing, like your insurance won't cover certain things, or you can't see the doctor you want to, or the wait times are too long, or whatever, those problems will all still exist and will likely be even worse with a government takeover. It's just that once they do take it all over and you experience one of those problems or any problem at all, you have no other option available to you. It's not like you can switch government providers. <laughs> Believe me, I wish I could. I wish I could. But now, if you don't like your insurance or you don't like your doctor or you at least have the option of pursuing something else in the marketplace that will hopefully satisfy that need. But with Medicare for all, you're stuck. You're stuck with whatever crap the government gives you. It, it always amazes me how these politicians and these progressives can rage against so-called monopolies and giant corporations while at the same time advocating for the government to take over entire swaths of the economy. This is like one-fifth of the U.S. economy. Uh, monopolies are bad, so we better put the government in charge of healthcare. Uh, give them monopoly over it. <laughs> what? How, how's that supposed to work? And is there any corporation larger than the federal government? I mean, it's not even close. So which is it? Are monopolies bad or are government monopolies good? The, the only good monopoly is a government monopoly, right? <laughs> oh, okay. And of course, if you've listened to any of my prior episodes on these topics, you know that in a truly free market, the only way you can maintain a monopoly 
is by providing the highest quality goods and services at the lowest prices. You see, the government can't dream of achieving that. That's why they have to mandate all their horrible ideas and make it illegal for you to circumvent them. That's why Elizabeth Warren has to take away the option of employer-based health care and force you into Medicare for all. And there haven't been any of these examples of all these doomsday scenarios that statists lay out in their dystopian free market dream worlds of companies maintaining strangleholds on sectors of the economy and then lowering their prices to drive out the competition. And then once all the competition's gone, they jack the prices back up and they corner the market. It's literally never happened. Okay, I dispelled all of these myths and more in my episode on the robber barons. If you haven't listened to it, you need to go listen to that. I do not do news or discuss topics in a vacuum here. You have to stay with the show and listen every week. But uh, but speaking of things that have never happened, you know, from time to time I come across someone on the Twitters and on the internet, on the interwebs, you know, advocating for single-payer health care or government takeover of an industry. Most notably, the Bernie Sanders, the Elizabeth Warrens. Their Twitter feeds are pure cancer at this point. But I always just ask one simple question if I end up getting involved at all. Because they all claim that somehow Medicare for All is going to save us money in the long run, right? That's the big claim. It's going to be 20% cheaper, I think, is Bernie Sanders' claim. He says your taxes will go up. But you won't have to pay co-pays and your overall costs. Those will go down. Same with Elizabeth Warren. In fact, that's all you could get out of her up until like a few days ago when you asked her if she was going to raise taxes. She was like a broken record. It was humiliating. It was embarrassing to watch. Taxes will go up for the 1%. For everybody else, costs will go down. Uh, okay, okay. I, so I have one simple question then. And I've asked probably as many times as Pocahontas has claimed costs will go down, and I've never once gotten an answer. Not even a convoluted political doublespeak politician dodge where they dance around the question and start talking about something else that they want to discuss. I get crickets every time I ask this question. So I'll ask it here again today. When has the government taken over something or provided a service, and cut costs. Can you point to one industry where the government has gotten involved and costs went down? Let alone quality going up. I'm not even talking about providing better quality services thanks to the government. I'm simply talking about reducing costs. Because we just crossed over $23 trillion in national debt. So where are all these government cost savings I keep hearing politicians talk about? Oh, are they, they come and do any day now? Any day? Uh, certainly we don't get it in education. You know that if you listen to my last episode on teachers unions. Education always needs more money. And they're doing a terrible job. I mean, imagine that. You do that. We, we did a shitty job. Oh yeah, we are in charge of education and you're, I know your kids are illiterate. Just give us more money. Uh, Try getting away with that if you have a business. Doing a terrible job and just insist that it's because your customers didn't pay you enough. It's incredible. Or the episode I did on Maxine Waters and student loans. Remember when the government said they were going to make college more affordable? 
<laughs> okay, what about housing? Affordable housing? Nope. And that's not even directly controlled by the government, but they just use their tax incentives and their programs and their zoning laws to prop those prices up. How about police and fire? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cost for providing police and fire departments. Uh, those services, the cost of those goes down every year. I almost forgot. <laughs> Except, no, no, wait, it's the opposite. It's the exact opposite of that. They always go up. And they have tremendous unfunded pension liabilities. Obamacare certainly didn't lower health care costs or anyone's premiums. Everybody's costs skyrocketed. What about, uh, what about military? Military costs. That budget ever shrink? Those costs ever get cut? Nope. That budget always increases. Environmental protection, the EPA? Nope. They always need more money. In fact, if you look at the government budget, you will see that they automatically build in about a 10% increase across the board every year. In every department. In every budget they pass, they plan on spending more than the year before. So please, somebody, give me one example of government cutting costs of anything, ever. It's literally never happened. They are incapable of doing this. It's why we started with the smallest government in the world, and we now have the largest government in the world. It's why we have a debt ceiling that started at $11 billion and we're now at $23 trillion, okay? It's why we still have archaic, pointless government bureaucracies all over the place. A Bureau of Weights and Measures, that still exists. Now, what the hell could they possibly be doing every day? Uh, what is out there that still needs to be weighed or measured? Huh? Anything? <laughs> I mean, it was founded in like 1875. Uh, 150 years ago, okay? Why are they still around? You've had 150 years to measure things. If you're not done by now, you'll never be done. I mean, really, what do you think they do? What do you think they do when they go into the office on Monday morning? What are they, what are they measuring? What are they doing? What are they weighing? And what benefit are they providing to society? None. None whatsoever. But they're still here. They're still here, still spending millions of dollars every year, I'm sure. And they will always be here. They will never go away. Once a government bureaucracy is created, it never goes away. Because government doesn't cut waste. Government never gets smaller. It only grows like a cancer. So until someone can point out one instance, just one, I want one, where the government has gotten involved, has stepped in, and made something cheaper over time, every time you hear Pocahontas or Bernie Sanders or any other politician blabbering on and on about how their system will save us all this money somehow, know that it's complete bullshit. Complete bullshit. In fact, if you look around the world, none of the single-payer systems that they fawn over are actually cutting costs or saving money at all. It's exactly the opposite. They pretend that the U.S. is spending, that the U.S. spending increases are out of control. You know, we're so much higher than everyone else. And all these industrial nations in the world are doing all this stuff. And we're the only one that isn't and blah, 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 blah. 
But I'm looking at a chart right now. This is healthcare cost growth rates from 2000 to 2017. And they have, I don't know, about 30 or 40 countries here. Okay. The highest growth rate is Estonia at 9.4%. The lowest is Greece at 1.7%. And this is the increase every year. Every year, none of them are cutting costs. There is not one country on this chart where the cost went down from year to year. It always goes up. The U.S. is at 4.5%. Okay, Mexico, 4.6%. Germany, 4.6%. Australia, 4.6%. Hungary, 4.8%. Belgium, 4.7%. Norway, 4.9%. Denmark, 5.1%. The Netherlands, 5.2%. The U.K., 5.9%. Sweden, everybody loves Sweden, right? 6%. Their costs go up 6% every year. All of these countries' costs are going up every year. None of them are cutting costs. So these claims are complete bullshit. And if you don't want to ask them my question of of pointing to an example where they've actually made good on any of their claims of cutting costs, of saving you money, next time you get the opportunity to talk to Pocahontas or talk to Bernie Sanders or any of the other numbskulls advocating for government-run health care and they babble on about how all these other countries are doing it and they are spending less than we are, How if we just turn the reins over to the government, they'll work their government magic and all the waste and fraud and abuse will disappear. Inefficient processes will be streamlined and voila, everything will be wonderful, right? That's the claim. You can even put aside the fact that it costs them billions of dollars just to design the goddamn Obamacare website that crashed immediately and was an utter disaster. I mean, Jesus Christ, am I the only one that remembers that? How, how they were saying that we should try to use the site at 3 a.m. when there would be less traffic. I, I think it's cost like $5 billion or something like that so far just for a website. Just for a website that's a heaping pile of shit. And you guys want them to do all of it? Run all of healthcare? Well, we'll forget about that. We'll forget about that for a second. And simply ask them to point to one of those countries that they, that they all fawn over, that they want to be the model for the U.S., that they want to model the U.S. after, that is showing healthcare costs going down from one year to the next. Because that's never happened either. In the history of government, the history of government-run healthcare, not just in America, but on the planet, on the planet, Costs have never gone down, ever. They're all increasing. Now, on the other hand, I can point to a million examples of free markets not only bringing down the costs of goods and services, but increasing the quality at the same time by leaps and bounds. It's not even close. To compare the government track record with that of the, of the marketplace would be like watching a professional football team, well, other than the Bears, play a bunch of sixth graders. It, it would be a disaster. You have a cell phone right now in your pocket that you're probably listening to this podcast on that is literally a supercomputer, okay? 40 or 50 years ago, even if they had a, a computer capable of doing all the things 
that that little six inch device does that you carry around in your pocket that is so light you actually forget that it's there sometimes even if they had that technology 40 or 50 years ago it would take up an entire room just one of them one of them would take up an entire room and you'd have like one gigabyte of storage space or whatever and you'd have to put it on a giant floppy disk. Remember those? The disk that we used to store about as much data as one picture on your cell phone was bigger than your actual cell phone is right now. Think about that. And the first cell phones costed thousands of dollars. Anybody remember watching Saved by the Bell? That clunky-ass cell phone that Zach Morris had that was so cool? That, that thing cost like $5,000 in the 80s. In 1980s dollars, by the way. And it didn't even do anything but make calls. I don't even think you could store numbers on it. You had to memorize the phone numbers. And you had to pay for each call by the minute. Uh, the reception was horrible. You had to pull out that long antenna. I mean, come on. Come on. Even if you overpay for the newest iPhone today, you're paying like a fifth of what that costs. And you can do literally anything you want with that phone today. You could run a business. You could make millions of dollars using nothing but your phone today. I mean, just look around. All technology increases bring about higher quality and the costs keep going down. Flat screen TVs, another great example. I mean, when I was, this is probably 10 years ago or so, maybe a little longer, 12 years ago, I was still lugging around this huge flat screen the ones with the big back on them uh me and my buddy had we, were, we moved around like two or three times in in two years and and he had his dad's old flat uh, old big screen tv it wasn't a flat screen it was a big screen and it weighed a, a, like a thousand freaking pounds it had the big back on it terrible picture you probably paid ten thousand dollars for that when it first came out now you can get a uh, an LCD smart uh, smart TV for like six hundred bucks. <laughs> it's paper thin, hangs on your wall, weighs practically nothing, has the internet on it. That's what the market does. It increases quality. It brings prices down over time. That's the whole goal of an economy, and it makes sense. As you spend more time making something and improving the process and increasing efficiencies, you go through trial and error, research and development, you find cheaper ways of making things and better ways of making things. And that's only possible by the first very expensive versions of those things being available to the rich people. Yes, the rich get the first crack at it. They get to overspend and buy the $10,000 version of the flat screen, buy the $5,000 cell phone that sucks. The money they spend gets poured back into the product, goes right back into the company who's creating that product, and they're able to find ways to make those things that were once only available to the rich and famous available to schlubs like you and me for practically nothing. That's what the market has done for you. We all live better than kings today, and we all seem to take it for granted. But if you look around to all the industries that government has taken over or gotten heavily involved in, for some strange reason, none of these brilliant market forces are at play anymore. Healthcare, education, 
I mean, why does it cost astronomically more to educate people today than it did 100 years ago? With all the technological advancements we've had, with the internet, computers, teachers used to have to grade things by hand. Even I'm old enough to remember having to write stuff down on those carbon copy pads and take tests on carbon copy pads. And, and now you take a test online and they have them graded instantaneously. The only carbon copies these kids today know are the CCs on emails. And they probably don't even know. They're such lemmings. They probably don't even know that that's where the CC came from, that it stands for carbon copy. Technology makes things more efficient, easier, faster, better, cheaper, unless the government gets involved. Why has the price of an MRI not plummeted? Why has the cost of treatment not gone down with advancements in technology? Before we had all this stuff, all of these non-invasive tests, we used to have to open people up, have massive surgeries just to see if something was wrong, let alone fix it. And now we can take a picture and put you in a little MRI machine for a little bit, and we can diagnose you and treat you just like that. And for some strange reason, the price of that picture goes up by like 4 to 10% every year, while the price of your cell phone goes down by that much. Why? 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 What's the difference? The only difference is, the only thing that separates that from the price of your smart TV or your smartphone is the government stepping in and messing everything up. And progressives and politicians will come up with a million excuses. Blame greedy corporations, greedy drug companies as to why healthcare costs are astronomically high, as to why health insurance is so expensive, because they have no other explanation. They refuse to look at what they are doing and acknowledge that they have broken this system. So therefore, it must be greed and profits. <laughs> okay, look, greed is a constant. Okay, greed always exists. Drug companies are no less greedy today than they were 20 years ago, and they're no more greedy than any telecom companies out there today. So now what? Now what's your explanation? How do you explain the price of other medical procedures not covered by insurance? Elective procedures like LASIK eye surgery going way, way down as the quality continues to go way, way up. Price goes down. Quality goes up. There are fields in healthcare where market forces and technology, techno technological advancements, have brought increased quality at lower costs. But the only areas of healthcare where we see market forces working that way are the ones where the government's not involved plastic surgery, LASIK eye surgery, because there's no government involvement. Because you don't have to go through insurance and the insurance company doesn't go back and forth with the government negotiating prices for things and all the other retarded, convoluted ways we pay for medical procedures now. You know, have you ever gone to the doctor and known what anything costs? The doctor doesn't even know what it costs. Well, why is that? Why is that? If you ask your doctor, next time you go to the doctor and they're going to do something to you, ask him how much it costs. He's not going to know. It's not that he doesn't want to tell you. It's that he legitimately doesn't know. Now, I, I just got my hair cut today. I walk into the barbershop. They got a chalkboard with the price of a haircut, $28. <laughs> you, you know right away. 
Why, why doesn't healthcare work like that? Why can't I walk into a doctor's office and know the price of something right off the bat? I haven't had to get LASIK eye surgery, but I bet you they have a price for it. I see advertisements for it. It's like 500 bucks an eye or something like that. How come they have prices? Uh, it's got to be pretty complicated. Lasers, your eyeball. I don't know. We pay out of pocket, and lo and behold, prices go down, quality goes up. Because that's where the incentives lie in a free market. The government has no incentives to increase quality or cut costs, and it never will. It is inherent in the system, and that's why you can't point to one example throughout history of it ever happening. And I know I've covered this in previous episodes, but quickly, real quick, let's look at it again in a slightly different way. And maybe if I haven't been able to get through to some of you, maybe this will help. And let's just do the simple math on the way these incentives play out depending on who is picking up the tab for the services that we're buying, right? When you are buying something, anything, and you know this has to be true on, just on its face if you think about it, you are highly sensitive to both costs and quality. You are buying it. It's for yourself. You want the best quality at the lowest cost. That's what you're looking for. Now, when you are paying for something that someone else is getting, you don't care about the quality as much, but you still care about the cost because it's your money. And when someone else is paying for something for you, like if you go out to dinner and your friend or your parents or whatever are picking up the check, you don't care about the costs because it's not your money. It's their money. But you care about the quality because you're the one eating it. You want that delicious, medium, rare, 30-day, dry-aged filet. Yeah, you're not just going to order USDA choice if you don't have to pick up the tab. Now, when you are paying for something that is not for you and you aren't paying for it with your own money, which is the situation every time the government spends a dollar, because it's not their money, they stole it, and they can steal as much as they want to as far as they're concerned. They have an unlimited supply of money, and what they're buying, they aren't using themselves. Because remember, these politicians exempt themselves from all these shitty, oppressive legislation that they force us to live with. They all get special congressional platinum healthcare plans for free. When you aren't using it, or paying for it directly... You don't care about cost, and you don't care about quality. Neither of those things matter to you. And that simple explanation right there, if you take nothing else away from this episode, is why the government has never once, in the history of mankind, taken over anything and either increased the quality or decreased the cost, let alone accomplish both. And once you realize that, and you come to terms with the fact that the government cannot, no matter what, provide better goods or better services at lower costs, why on earth would you allow them to do anything? And when you ask yourself that question, and you come up with the answer, remember that there is plenty of available real estate over here 
in Ankapistan. Guys, if you like the show today, I need you to do a couple of things for me. First, continue to listen, download, and subscribe. If you haven't listened to all of our episodes, I suggest that you at least go back and listen to the last five. Take the five-episode challenge. Better yet, make it ten. Go back and listen to the last ten episodes, and you will be better informed and have more clarity of the world around you than anybody else you know. That is my promise to you. But I also need you to share the show with some of your friends, some of your relatives, whoever. I always ask that you share it with at least two people. So share the episode with two people. Download and subscribe. Give me a five-star rating on iTunes if you think the show is worth it. And if you want to go above and beyond the call of duty and donate to the show monetarily, go to our website, peddlingfictionpodcast.com. Every dollar that you donate goes right back into the show to develop content and increase my reach. And if you can do all that, I will be back from sunny, south of the border, Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, for the next three weeks. And until then, just remember to keep on peddling that so-called fiction. Peace.